Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. So far-right, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant parties have been on the rise throughout Western Europe, but they haven't actually taken power anywhere. That could change after recent elections in Italy, because this guy could be the next Italian prime minister. So that's Matteo Salvini, the head of Italy's league. And what he's saying is, we need a mass cleaning in Italy, from one street to the next, one neighborhood to the next, town square to town square, with strong methods if necessary. And it's the strong methods if necessary part that's particularly scary. His party won the second most seats in last week's election, which means he could be Western Europe's first far-right leader since 1945. So, Zach, let's start with the election itself, because you've written about the far-right in Germany, in France, elsewhere. They haven't done as well. They did really well in Italy. Why? Italy has a really fractured political system with very little public trust in established parties. And the incumbent Democratic Party had a huge drop-off for a variety of complex reasons. The result was that... The vote went primarily, in fact, a rough majority to two anti-establishment parties, the Five Star Movement, which is like an ideologically confusing, pretty unique movement. They got the most votes. And then the League, uh, formerly known as the Northern League. They were aligned, the League, with several other right-wing parties. And so the result is that they, as a coalition, have more seats in parliament than the Five Star Movement, which is kind of on its own, has. So that means that the right is in a better position to potentially create a government than anyone else. A lot depends on the peculiarities of the Italian political system, which we won't know how those pan out for a while. But the point is, the league is arguably in pole position to make a government. I mean, let's go into the numbers there for a second, because they they matter. So, I mean, Italy, you need to have a threshold of 40 percent to form a government. So where do these parties come out just in terms of the numbers? Because that sort of informs what does happen after this. Yeah, five stars at 33 percent. Again, the single largest. The league is at 17%, which is an astonishing increase from where they were last time, which was roughly 4%. But the league, together with its various different right-wing allies, is at 37%. So they're damn close to being able to start forming a government. And and Jen, that part, we're listening to the quote, mass cleaning, strong methods, it sounds bad and it sounds scary. But when you look at what his party actually believes or what he actually believes, is it as scary, scarier, not as scary? As scary, if not scarier. So the League actually started out as this kind of secessionist movement um, that wanted to literally secede from southern Italy. But partially that was actually based on kind of like a racial and regional geographic identity that they kind of created. And it was inherently anti-immigrant from the start uh, against the southern Italians, which they looked down on as dirty and not working as hard. They felt that it was a drain on like their resources in the industrial north. Right. So they had that kind of platform framework always, but they started to kind of shift more toward anti-Islam and anti-Roma. So more immigrant focused. Now, today, they want to do things like bolster Italy's borders, close down mosques that are unregulated. They're really anti-EU. They want to take back sovereignty. We're slaves to the EU, that kind of thing that we've seen. And they also really love Putin. They praised Vladimir Putin for promoting traditional family values, which is an interesting dog whistle phrase. Questionable what they actually mean. I think it's pretty clear. So it's become this very hardcore anti-immigrant 
anti-Muslim parties. At one point, Salvini said, the problem with Islam is that it's a law, it's not a religion, and it's incompatible with our laws, our rights, and our freedoms. This is the same kind of rhetoric you've heard from anti-Muslim demagogues all over the Western Europe and all over, actually, in the United States. So National Security Advisor Mike Flynn said something almost exactly the same. Pat Robertson has said stuff like that. So you hear this kind of same rhetorical strains over and over again, and you hear it really, really strongly. So just to get back to Europe, I mean, he's posted Salvini photos from within his office where he has a Make America Great Again hat. He has a framed photo of Vladimir Putin. And there's kind of an interesting confluence where they both, in terms of Salvini and some of his other allies on the far right, they see Putin as a defender of Christianity, of being anti-gay, of sort of being kind of in line with what we think of as kind of religious Christian values. So I think disaggregating that is interesting because you have a substantive problem that they're not wrong to talk about mixed in with this bigotry that's rising not just there but elsewhere in Europe and to Jen's point from before here at home also. Yeah, it's worth noting that his cleaning reference that we talked about earlier is, as far as we can tell, a reference to his plan to deport something like 500,000 undocumented immigrants. That would be an intense and very large-scale operation of trying to go and approve mostly minority people. Who are trying to go into Italy. Were he to be in charge of the government, which again, I, I really want to emphasize is a real possibility, the chance of there being a serious anti-immigrant campaign, not targeting just small numbers of people, not attempting to fix the crappy conditions and refugee camps, but just uprooting families and really changing the demographic composition of Italy. It's not outside the realm of possibility. So I think it's actually really important to kind of drill into the numbers so that, yes, there is a refugee crisis. Italy signed an agreement with Libya, which is kind of the transit point for a vast majority of migrants, refugees, asylum seekers who are coming from Middle East and Northern Africa and farther out in Africa and Afghanistan uh, more broadly. They go right from Libya to Italy. So Italy essentially signed this agreement with the Libyan government, such as it is, and said, basically, you guys try to keep them in, you know, stop sending them over. So that's created all these horrific conditions in Libya, right? Like now there's just like a plug that's just stopping everyone from going across. But it's also important to talk about the actual numbers. So if you actually look at refugees and asylum seekers as percentage of the total population, Italy is actually one of the lowest levels of all the countries in Europe. So Sweden, Cyprus, Austria, Germany, Denmark, Greece, Netherlands, and France all have way higher numbers as percentage of the population. Italy is like the second lowest. The UK is right below that. So there are some kind of myths and distortions about the refugee crisis. Again, you have large numbers, but a lot of them transit through Italy and don't actually stop there, which is one thing. The other issue is that the actual crime rates, according to Italian government data, crime rates in the last decade have steadily declined year by year in every single province in Italy. And the percentage of crimes committed by foreigners includes refugees, asylum seekers, has also steadily declined year by year in every single province. But a lot of this is conflated, right, in the rhetoric that you hear from these far-right parties. It's conflated with crime, with danger, with security, right? These immigrants are dangerous. And there have been kind of prominent incidents of, of violence. There have also been prominent incidents of far-right violence against immigrants. But if you actually look at the numbers, that's not the case, Right. So it's a lot of rhetoric. It's a lot of scaremongering around refugees and asylum seekers. One thing that's that's really interesting is that when you poll Europeans and you ask them 
what percentage of your population are immigrants or what percentage of your population is Muslim, they always, always on average overstated dramatically, sometimes by multiples of four times or something like that. So even though the population size is small, there's no evidence of serious economic dislocation on the part of Italians as a result of immigration. There's no evidence that the immigrants are bringing crime, to use someone's famous phraseology. There is a sense among Italians that they are losing a part of who they are. And that speaks much more to cultural anxieties and, frankly, fear and bigotry than it does actual concrete impacts of refugee and population flows. There was a story that we had talked about once in the newsroom, and we all sort of chuckled at it, but it actually is kind of serious. Italy didn't qualify for the World Cup, which was like a massive kind of cultural blow to the way Italy sees itself. That's sport ball. It is, yeah. following along at home. Jen tracks this with a microscopic level of detail, except the exact opposite of tracking Absolutely. it. But the, the reason I mention it is, one, you know, Zach, to your point, that's a blow to a country that prides itself. The level of kind of fanaticism within Europe countries have towards soccer is something we here, even if we're all sports fans, can't entirely understand. But also because politics and sports in, in Italy are so closely tied. So Silvio Berlusconi of Bunga Bunga fame, probably the best known in the U.S. of Italian politicians, owned a very prominent Italian soccer team. And sort of part of his name and part of his rise came from that. You also had a moment this past week where the most famous black soccer player in Italy, a guy named Mario Bellatelli, went after a spokesperson for the league who is himself black because he said, your party wants to kick out 600,000 African migrants. And his quote was pretty good. This is from the soccer player. Perhaps I'm blind or perhaps they haven't told you, but you're black. So it's sort of this, again, this racial component, but this also intermingling of sports, culture, race. And I think as we're trying to figure out why Italy, when it's not, you know, Jen, when you're pointing out that the numbers don't bear out the fear or the hatred, I do think that there's this deeper sort of questioning about what is Italy and where will Italy be where the migrant issue becomes an easy kind of scapegoat. Right. And I also think it's really important to point out the kind of ideological connections that, you know, we talked about the rise of the far right in Europe. Salvini has given speeches in front of the National Front's rallies in France, Marine Le Pen's far right party. Right. She invited him to give a speech. He has ties to all these different far right parties. But there's one kind of central driver in a lot of ways or one kind of node that connects all of these different parties and groups and individuals and that's Russia. So we talk a lot in the U.S. right now about like was there collusion with Russia in the Trump campaign right and again this is not a story about Trump but that's what the Mueller investigation is about right like was there collusion. So in Italy the League Party so Salvini's party literally went to Moscow in 2017 and signed a collaboration agreement with United Russia, with Putin's party. Like, openly went and said, yes, we, we will collude with you. This is good. There's a pretty amazing photo of Salvini wearing a T-shirt with Putin's face on it, yep. with, uh, like, it, Putin's in a military uniform in it. And can you imagine if in the U.S. context, Mueller had a photo of Trump wearing a Putin T-shirt? I just don't want to have the mental image of Trump wearing a T-shirt, but, Oof. you know, but to, you know, to your point, like Marine Le Pen took a bank loan openly, took a loan from Putin's party. So, Oh, wait, that was this, from a Russian bank, wasn't it? And Putin has denied that it came from that. Yeah, but it's Russia. So well, yeah, yeah. I just I think want we to be, safely want say, to be uh, clear. If it's a Russian bank, in quotes. Um, but I think to your point, it is interesting because there's no attempt to hide the fact that they see him. There's an affinity, but there's also no attempt to hide the literal support. Yeah, and it's actually not just this party, which is kind of strange. Most of the mainstream, if not all of the mainstream political parties in Italy are openly pro-Russia. The League even pushed the creation of a Friends of Putin group inside parliament 
in 2014. And it was a cross-party group. It wasn't just this group. A lot of different groups signed up for this thing. And it was pushing against sanctions on Russia. They're openly supportive of, like, Russia seizing Crimea, especially the League as this kind of former secessionist party. They openly talk about, like, yeah, you know, we support the right to self-determination, which is how they frame Crimea, which is also the Russian party line. And when we talk about him going to Moscow, he also, Salvini, came to Pennsylvania during the 2016 presidential election to go to a Trump rally wearing a pro-Trump T-shirt, met with Trump for about 20 minutes, according to Italian media. And he's tweeted out as early as December 2016. He was hardcore pro-Trump. He tweeted out in December 4th, 2016, viva Trump, viva Putin, viva Le Pen, y viva la Lega. So literally... All of those groups all together openly. He's been hardcore pro-Trump. And we go back to talking about the anti-Muslim kind of anti-immigrant sentiment. So two days after Trump issued the travel ban, right when he came into office in 2017, that in its initial iteration banned refugees and immigrants from seven mostly Muslim majority countries. So two days after that, Salvini tweeted out what POTUS is doing on the other side of the ocean. I'd like it done in Italy. An invasion is underway. It needs to be blocked. Hashtag Trump. So there's this kind of ideological consistency across a lot of these parties. And fundamentally, it's about anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant sentiment. But are there breakpoints there? I mean, is it fair to say that Le Pen equals Salvini equals Trump equals equals equals? Or are there things, breakpoints in there that make one very different from the other? I mean, it's tricky because that is the core uniting feature But lots of different far-right parties on both sides of the Atlantic have different approaches on more domestic issues. They have differing views on the welfare state, for instance. Some of them, like Le Pen, are fairly pro-maintaining the high levels of social support and spending that their governments have. Others, like Trump, want to slash the social safety net because that's sort of where their ideological coalitions are. But that doesn't bear very much on their sources of support, right? And interestingly, despite all these Putin connections, there's not a lot of good evidence that Putin has been able to, like, catapult one of these parties to leading their country, that he's his like meddling in these elections actually mattered. The thing that does seem to matter over and over again is, is anti-immigrant sentiment for on the one hand, and on the other hand, some country-specific stuff. So we talk about these as a transnational movement, and rightly so. There are a lot of ideological affinities here. But the reason that the League has been so successful in part is because the Italian government really is dysfunctional. If I were an Italian voter, they've had something like 65 different governments in the past 70 years, which is crazy if you think about it. That's nearly a new person in charge of the government every year, right? If you had that level of turnover, you would also probably be really frustrated with establishment parties and would probably be looking for anti-establishment alternatives. Now, a lot of that went to the Five Star Movement, which is a sort of left populist thing that doesn't is anti-immigrant but not as anti-immigrant as Salvini is. But you combine that with the popularity of anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim rhetoric, especially since the refugee crisis, and you really you start to understand why there's such a groundswell of support for the League in Italy specifically. I also think it's important to point out that like Putin didn't probably meddle actively in this election because he kind of didn't need to. Like I said, all of these parties are already really pro-Russia, so spend your money elsewhere. I think part of it also is that if you're Italy, you have felt for a long time, not wrongly, that you're being bullied by the EU. 
other EU countries, Germany especially, kind of mock Italy sort of as lazy and spendthrift, and it's, it's not a friendly relationship. So, you know, Zach, I agree. If you're an Italian, and on the one hand, your government's corrupt, and the tax system is messed up, and you know there's widespread taxes not being paid, and your country's kind of bankrupt because of it, and you feel like you're talked down to, and you feel like you're being overrun by immigrants, you can imagine the appeal of someone who either is a strong man or wants to be seen as a strong man, or associates himself with Putin. So you've got this kind of like, we're, we're all macho, all sort of pounding our chest together. But let's kind of wrap here. So we were talking a bit at the outset about the numbers, that n- none of these parties hit 40%, so there has to be some sort of coalition. So what comes next? The Italian president, in a literal way, the Italian president picks someone and says, make a government, see if you can make a government. Theoretically, he could not pick Salvini. Theoretically, he could pick that of the five-star party. But what's the likely next step from here? I'll be honest, I have no idea. I don't think anyone knows. Every credible analyst of Italian politics I've looked at has been like, look, this was a watershed year for anti-establishment parties. Nobody knows who the president is going to appoint to make the government. The deadline is the end of March. And nobody knows which coalitions are going to come out of this because so many of the different parties have ruled out forming coalitions with each other. So it's just not clear who can command a plurality of support in the Italian parliament at this point, which is what's necessary to form at least a minority government, which would not pass legislation very effectively. The whole thing is a giant mess. And it's also worth underscoring here that Italy is not, you know, it often gets ignored in U.S. political discourse, but it's not a fringe country. It's the world's eighth largest economy. It's the third largest economy in Europe. What happens in Italy matters, right? It's really important. And if it gets taken over by an anti-immigrant populist or a kind of weirdo populist movement that doesn't really have strong ideological affinities and doesn't have a lot of experience managing an economy, well, a lot of things could go wrong. And so we will be on Vox.com writing about this. We will be tweeting out more stuff as we get closer to finding out who sets up the government and whether it is Salvini, whether by some chance it isn't the left wing. But this is a story we'll be covering, you know, Zach, for the, the reasons you mentioned, that Italy really does matter. For many of us, there are subjects we would have loved to have explored in school, but we didn't have time because we were either mindful of our GPAs or drinking or doing other dumb things college students do. But now you can get that from The Great Courses Plus. It's a way to discover new interests, pick up new hobbies, learn more about the things you want to learn more about, with insight from leading professors and experts. It gives you unlimited access to thousands of lectures in pretty much any category you can think of. History, science, math, literature, art, politics. You can watch or listen whenever you want. There's no homework, there's no test pressure, and The Great Courses Plus is lifelong learning at its best. So here's an example you could check out. Fundamentals of Photography. It's a fun course where you can learn how to take better photos from a National Geographic photographer with tips and tricks about how to use lighting or frame your photos, whether you're using a big, expensive professional camera or your iPhone or pretty much anything else. So I know you'll get a lot out of The Great Courses Plus. And right now, they're giving my listeners unlimited access to all of their lectures with a free trial. So start exploring today by getting your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. For elsewhere, we're turning to Burma, also known as Myanmar, because that country's leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, is probably the most famous human rights activist in the world. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. The U.S. Holocaust Museum, which is not far from Vox headquarters here in D.C., gave her a major award in 2012. But this week, they decided to take it back, and they publicly slammed her for doing nothing to stop a genocide happening in her own country. We're about to hear the words of a Holocaust Museum researcher talking about 
what was not being done by her and what is happening in Burma as a result. What we saw are very concerning early warning signs of genocide. And this is based on what we've seen in past genocides. And that's why we're now sounding the alarm about what we see in Burma. So that was Andrea Gittleman, who's a Holocaust Museum researcher, talking in 2015. It has since gotten much, much, much worse. Let's start there with what's happening on the ground. We've written some good stuff on this on the site. But, Zach, let's start with that. I mean, how bad is it in Burma? Who is the group that's suffering and why why is this award being grabbed from her? Why is it being taken back? It's awful. This is one of the most dire human rights situations in the world. Uh, The Rohingya minority in northern Burma, a Muslim group, has long been persecuted by the ethno-religious majority, which is Buddhist. And the government has, for a variety of reasons, recently decided to step up this persecution into an outright campaign of ethnic cleansing, if not full-on genocide. So we don't know how many people have been killed. It's impossible to count. We do know that roughly 700,000 people, Rohingya, have fled since August. There are reports of rape as a weapon of ethnic cleansing. There are reports of destruction of villages, of homes just to force people out. It bears all the hallmarks of a genocidal campaign designed to force the Rohingya out of Burma. Right. So Aung San Suu Kyi is the head, nominal head of the government, um, was this pro-democracy darling that the West in particular kind of lauded as this beacon of freedom and democracy. And in some ways she was, right? Like she was fighting for democracy in her country. But once she got into power, now she is essentially not only at first did she just refuse to even speak about What's going on? It's in Rakhine State is the the section um, of Myanmar where this is going on. She would refuse to say the word Rohingya at all. She got massive international criticism, like, why don't you speak out? Why don't you speak out? She finally did. And finally, for the first time ever, said the word Rohingya, and it was to call them terrorists. Right. And that's sort of been their government line. I mean, it's important to note that in a technical legal sense, she does not control the military of Burma. Correct. When she was under house arrest for decades, which is part of what made her this huge kind of icon where you two would do shout out, shout outs to her at concerts, where there was a movie made about her, there were books written about her. Part of it was that she was under house arrest for decades. When she came out and was made the leader of the country, she doesn't in a literal sense control the military, but she also has moral weight and moral heft. And when the Holocaust Museum is bashing her, they're bashing her for not using that voice. I just want to read a little bit from the statement put out by the museum when they said they were taking back the award. And they wrote, We had hoped that you, as someone we and many others have celebrated for your commitment to human dignity and universal human rights, would have done something to condemn and stop the military's brutal campaign and to express solidarity with the targeted Rohingya population. And then they basically say, you didn't. So she's losing not just the cultural stuff. You know, Jenny, you're making the point about you too is no longer in on Team, uh, team Suchi. But yeah, they actually came out. It's a silly little thing, right? But you two and Bono is in large part why anyone in America first heard about Aung San Suu Kyi. And they actually came out and said that they support revoking this award, right? That's pretty stunning. And, and there's also been, you know, Zach, we were talking about this once before, also this effort to try to get her Nobel Peace Prize revoked. There's that much anger petition. I forget how many hundred thousands of people have signed it, but, but it's not a small number of people. Well, I think that when you preside over a campaign that could well amount to genocide, you don't get to be considered a force for peace in the world anymore. That seems fair to me. Hot take. Yeah. Look, more broadly, it shows that 
we need to be really careful about how we think and talk about human rights leaders and grant people moral weight and credibility. She got this because she stood up to a military regime that was authoritarian and cruel and vicious, and that seemed impressive. And it was, you know, she played a role, a serious role in opening up the Burmese political system and creating a, a real sense of democracy there. The problem is democracy is not the same thing as respect for human rights, right? It, they usually co-travel. Or they pluralism don't always. either. Yeah. And so in this case, she was somebody who believed in a kind of democracy, a democracy for Buddhists, but does not care at all about equal rights for all citizens of her country, as far as we can tell. I mean, if she were to say something about the Rohingya or try to stop the military, maybe it would seem like she cared, but she's actively resisted any international pressure she's gotten on this level. And it shows that the international community is often unsubtle in who it decides to elevate and who it decides to celebrate. It's actually worse. that It's not that she just doesn't care, like she's uninterested in human rights. She's actively supporting this. She's defending it. So it's not just like she's ignoring it. She's now come out and just whitewashed it, right, and trying to convince firing back at the international community, calling the Rohingya terrorists, right? That's furthering the campaign. It's not just ignoring it. Like she's now actively defending it. And part of what makes this, I think, so painful in terms of the, the role of the Holocaust Museum, which as an organization is set up with the goal not just of commemorating the Holocaust, but also of trying to predict, witness, and prevent future genocide. The award she was given was in 2012. She got it from Natalie Portman, and the award is named after Elie Wiesel, so probably the most prominent Holocaust survivor in the world. And if we're talking about somebody who speaks with moral clarity and has been consistent on it, it's hard to find somebody better than Elie Wiesel. So, Jen, to your point, she had cultural support. She had, you know, Zach, to your point, she had sort of the aspirational wish projected on her from much of the world, and she had the heft of the Holocaust Museum and Elie Wiesel, and now it's gone. And the letter that the Holocaust Museum actually sent to Aung San Suu Kyi revoking the award ended with another quote from Elie Wiesel. It says, quote, neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. It literally says, remember what he said. You know, it's just so powerful. And I love that line about silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. That's literally such a pointed jab at look what you're doing. You're you're you are now the oppressor. And that's so powerful. And I think that's a perfect way to end. Jen and Zach, brilliant, always eloquent. Thank you. Right back at you, Yochi. Thanks very much. Yeah, you're okay. Eh, meh. Thanks always to Jillian Weinberger, recently back from what felt like seven or eight years away in South Korea, working in the Olympics and vaguely recovered from jet lag. So we are glad you're back. Welcome back. To our engineer, Griffin Tanner, to our social media manager, Julie Bogan. Come find us on email, voxworldly.com. You could find us on Twitter if you do hashtag Worldly Podcast. If you like what you heard, we hope you do. Come subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, any place else podcasts can be found. We look forward to talking to you all next week.